Good morning. Find 2 Chronicles chapter 32 this morning in your Bibles in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles. Uh, again, in the Old Testament chapter 32. Feel free to look it up in the table of contents. If you have a hard copy, if you have a, if you have a digital copy, then that's easier. But uh, find 2 Chronicles chapter 32. We're in a series that we will conclude next week called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly on some of the lesser-known kings of Israel, and we've included some of the kings of Judah in this too, like the one that we're going to look at this morning. While you're finding Second Chronicles chapter 32, a number of years ago I heard a speech by a guy by the name of Jack Gropple. Jack Gropple is an authority on performance uh, under stress, and he has a training center in the swamplands of Florida where he trains leaders, elite athletes, FBI agents, uh, people in the military to help them optimize their performance in stressful situations. In a speech he gave on this topic, he talked about a little experiment he had done on a group of NFL linemen who had come to train with him. He told them that they were to run a dirt road through the forest to the perimeter uh, of the fence of the center. They were to touch the white fence at the perimeter of the training center and return to their starting point in nine minutes, which was a breeze for world-class athletes. However, and this is where the experiment comes in, he told them that he needed them to keep their heads up and to be alert because they would be running near a swamp and alligators climbed in and out of it. Also, since the sun was out, snakes would be sunning themselves. They won't bite you, he said, but if you see one coiled up, just stay clear of it. And finally, he told them that just the day before they had spotted a wild boar out there and that this wild boar was as big as these linemen with razor-sharp tusks that would tear them apart. Okay, go, he said. And what they didn't know is that Jack had planted a cameraman out in the bushes, and just when they turn the corner on the dirt road, the cameraman snorts and rustles the bushes, and, well, watch, watch, watch what happens. Now, what's fascinating is that he did the same experiment a week later with a group of elite FBI uh, SWAT team members. Told them the exact same thing. Put the cameraman in the bushes. When the group turned the corner, the cameraman snorted and rustled the bushes. What do you think happened? What do you think happened? Well, he couldn't show the video because their faces uh, can't be seen publicly, but their reaction was altogether different. Each of the elite FBI SWAT team members dropped into a combat-ready position as if to say, bring it on. Why? Why was their response so different? Well, it's because that's what they were trained for. They were trained for situations in which everyone else runs for fear. You know, it occurs to me that, that we live in an age of fear. I sort of sense that even the church is full of fear. Fear increasingly defines our world on all fronts about all things, from Ukraine to Uvalde, from China to Charleston, London to Loudoun County. Fear about local, national, and international economies, climate change, the surge in violence in cities, baby formula, food shortages, the price of gasoline, the newest strain of COVID, school shootings, the fear of being canceled, the fear of being labeled a racist, a homophobe, a transphobe, a bigot, 
The fear of recession, fear of civil war, fear of Russia, North Korea, and China. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Be afraid, the world says. Be very afraid. And as I said, since even in the church that there is an enormous amount of fear about these things. But over and against the call of the world to be afraid, the Scriptures call Christ's church to be courageous. Yet, without minimizing or shying away from the dangers of life in a fallen world, over and over, throughout the Scriptures, we read stories of men and women who had to stare down danger, despots, and death in order to obey God. It's as if God wants to make sure that we, His church, realize that there is no shortcut around the need for courage in the people of God living in a fallen world. And so, this morning, we're going to examine an episode in the life of a king of Judah named Hezekiah that reminds us that there is no shortage to courage in the life of the people of God. Hezekiah was a good king. Chapters 29 and 30 of 2 Chronicles describe a list of the good things that Hezekiah did. He was faithful to God throughout his life. Wasn't perfect, but when he was confronted with things that he did wrong, unlike some of the good kings that we've seen in the past who did not end well. Hezekiah did end well because he repented. When he was confronted, he repented. Which makes the situation that he finds himself in at the beginning of chapter 32, makes it so, well, let's say counterintuitive. Chapter 32, verse 1. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 1, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. You see what I mean by counterintuitive? After all that he had so faithfully done, he gets attacked. And it's not just that he gets attacked by anyone. He gets attacked by the king of Assyria and his army. The Assyrians were cold-blooded, they were murderous, they were evil. They surpassed everyone in their sheer cruelty uh, and their savagery. They, as they conquered new places, they took uh, the leaders of those places and hung their bodies on poles. Archaeological digs uh, have uncovered artwork from this time that shows Sennacherib lounging on his throne, being fed grapes by one of his wives, holding a wine goblet in his hand, while off in the distance in a grove of trees, Assyria's enemies are hanging upside down, headless. They were savage. Not only were they savage, not only were they violent, but they were also masters of psychological warfare. They utilized intimidation techniques brilliantly. They were masters of fear. And so if you were Hezekiah, what would you be thinking? I mean, I'd be thinking, seriously? This is what I get for all of my faithfulness? I get ISIS in my backyard? Are you kidding me? Nothing Hezekiah has done has brought this upon himself. It is unfair and it is unjust just like life in a fallen world is often unfair and unjust. But unlike me, Hezekiah doesn't seem to be shocked by this. Not only is he not shocked, but in the face of superior and terrible army, 
uh, of Assyria, Hezekiah doesn't crumble or wilt. He's like the FBI guys. He sees the danger. He takes a combat position as if to say, whatever comes my way, bring it on. Now, we don't have time this morning to to spend on it, but if we were to read verses 2 through 5, we would see that Hezekiah took some very practical precautions to fortify the capital city of Jerusalem uh, against the king of uh, of, uh, of Assyria. He takes these practical precautions. And then after taking those very reasonable practical precautions, the text says in verse 6, He appointed military officers over the people, and he assembled them before him in the square at the city gate, and he encouraged them uh, with these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there's a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gain confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, says. Hezekiah doesn't crumble or wilt. He issues four commands to his men. I don't know if you saw those four commands. Be strong, be courageous, do not be afraid, and do not be discouraged. Despite the vast and terrible army in front of you, despite the fact that we're outmanned, Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Be strong. Be courageous. Why? He says, because there's a greater power with us than with the king of of Assyria. And the text says that the people gain confidence from what he said. Now, I want to stop for a moment, and I want to make sure that we understand something here. Despite the truth of what Hezekiah says... There was no certainty at this point about the outcome of this battle. Not at this point. No guarantee of success. Men of the army of Judah were prepared to risk their lives even though the odds were against them. And so I want you to make a note of this because I think there's an enormous amount of confusion about this in the Christian community. Make a note of this. Faith, faith does not eliminate risk. A faith does not eliminate risk in this life. There is no promise in the Bible that every effort for the cause of God will succeed, at least not in the short run. Think about it. In the New Testament, John the Baptist risked calling a spade a spade when Herod divorced his wife to take his brother's wife, Herodias, and John got his head chopped off for it. Paul was beaten and thrown in in jail in Jerusalem, shipped off to Rome, and then executed two years later. And how many graves are there around the world because thousands of young missionaries risked their lives for the cause of God among the unreached people groups of the world? Faith doesn't eliminate risk. We don't know, we don't know any more than Hezekiah's army knew at that point in the story what will happen tomorrow. We don't know. Evidently, God intends for us to live and to act in ignorance and uncertainty about the outcome of our actions. You don't know if your heart will stop before this service is over. You don't know if some oncoming driver will swerve out of his lane and hit your head on as you go home. 
You don't know if the food in the restaurant you go to after church may have some deadly virus in it. You don't know if a stroke may paralyze you before the week is out. You don't know if some man with a rifle will just start shooting at some event that you attend. We are not God. We don't know about tomorrow. Faith does not eliminate risk in this life. Now, let me tell you why I'm spending so much time on this. When I moved to Evansville, uh, I was coming from Dallas, a, a place that was consumed with the idols of status and success. That's the, those, those were the people that I was used to preaching to, people who were consumed with the idols of status and success. When I moved here, I kept preaching like I was preaching to people in Dallas. And a guy who had lived here uh, in Evansville all of his life reached out to me and he said, listen, he said, you need to understand that status and success and achievement are not the idols in Evansville like they are in Dallas. You know what he said? You know what he said next? He said, the big idols in Evansville are safety and security. I don't know if you would agree or disagree with that. But if it's true, I want to explode the myth of safety. And I want to deliver you from the enchantment of security because it's a mirage. It doesn't exist. It is true. Every direction you turn, there are unknowns and there are things beyond your control. Risk is built right into the fabric of our finite lives. You cannot avoid risk even if you want to. Ignorance and uncertainty about tomorrow is our native air. All of our plans for tomorrow's activities can be shattered by a thousand unknowns, whether we stay at home under the covers or ride the freeways. And the tragedy is that in the deceptive enchantment of safety and security, where we take risks for ourselves all the time without even knowing it, the tragedy is that we are paralyzed to take any risks for the cause of Christ because we're deluded and we think it may jeopardize a security which in fact does not even exist. I want you to understand that it is right and it is necessary to take risks for God. That's what Hezekiah is calling his people to. You either live controlled by fear or you respond in courage. Hezekiah and his army are outnumbered. They're taking their lives into their own hands to fight this vast and terrible army. But you know something? You know something? When something is important enough, you do it even when the odds are not in your favor. Uh, a long time ago, I was, once, I was pushing a church that I pastored to make some uh, really significant changes. And people in the church were afraid. There are all sorts of things that they were afraid of. And uh, in a big meeting about this change, someone in the church stood up and asked me, what if we do this and it fails? How would you have answered that question? Stands up. Let's say it's like this, this room. Stands up, says, what do we do if this fails? How, how would you have answered that question? Here, here's how that question often gets answered. Uh, it gets answered by an attack on their faith. Someone will say, you just don't have enough faith. Which is a way of shaming a person for asking about risk. It's a way of saying faith eliminates risk. 
But that's not true. Faith doesn't eliminate risk. It was a fair question this person was asking. When you take a risk, you can lose. You can lose money. You can lose face. You can lose your life. You can lose your job. And what's worse, if you, ri- if you take a risk, you may endanger other people, not just yourself. You may lose their money. Their life may be at stake. These are, these are just realities, right? So, it was a very fair question this person was asking. And so, I'm standing in front of this big crowd of people, fear etched on their faces, and their fear was manifesting itself in anger at me. (laughs) And I knew that what I said in the next moment could make or break this thing. I took a deep breath, and I said, I believe Christ would rather have us try this out of a concern for His name and fail than play it safe and do nothing. Now, I heard it come out of my mouth, and I was like, wow, that was genius. (laughs) I thought that was fantastic. And somehow that response won the day. We decided to make the change. And do you know what happened? It failed miserably. (laughs) It fell flat on its face. I had to apologize. I got emails every day for months from people that said, I told you so. But I still believe what I said. And I believe that Christ would rather have us try this out of concern for His name and fail than play it safe and do nothing. I still believe that. Some time ago I said that my prayer is that 50,000 people over the next 50 years will be discipled through the ministry of City Church. If that's going to happen, every single one of us We'll have to take risks. We'll have to step out of our comfort zones. We'll have to take relational risks. We'll have to take financial risks. We'll have to take spiritual risks. We collectively as a church will have to take risks. It won't happen by playing it safe because the odds are radically against us ever accomplishing that goal. Do you understand that? The odds are radically against us ever accomplishing that goal. But when something is important enough, you do it even when the odds are not in your favor. You are either trapped in the enchantment of security and safety, or you have been freed by the Holy Spirit to say, I'll take the risk, and may the Lord do what seems good to Him, come what may. Faith. Faith does not eliminate risk. Risk is part of the fabric of life. Well, after Hezekiah's rousing speech, the soldiers have taken confidence, but they're still in deep trouble facing a much more advanced and sophisticated and terrifying military power. Let's read on. The king of Assyria begins a campaign of psychological warfare. And so he sends a message to Hezekiah. Look at verse 10. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Skip down to verse 13. 
Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver? This sounds like a Twitter. This sounds like a guy on Twitter. Were, were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their hand from my their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my fathers destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Skip down one more time to verse 18. And then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and make them afraid in order to capture the city. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other peoples of the world. They called him the work of men's hands. So you see what's happening. Uh, this is psychological warfare. Uh, verse 18 says it straight out. To terrify them and make them afraid in order to capture the city. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Uh, is that a voice that echoes in your head these days? Well, let me ask you, is that a voice that resonates in our culture today? Uh, let me ask you another question. Is that a... Is that a message that resonates on social media these days? Are you afraid? Afraid of being canceled? Afraid of being called in the name? Afraid of associating with the church? If, you, if you're on social media, if you read or watch the news, that's the message. And it can be terrifying, frankly. The question is, how do followers of Christ live courageously in a world full of risk with plenty of things to fear? Do we bury our heads in the sand, tune it out, and whistle a happy tune all the D-Day long and pretend that it, it all doesn't exist? And that's not a courageous response. Hezekiah couldn't do that. He'd get trounced if he did that. Do we just throw caution to the wind and make foolish decisions and go off half-cocked, full of faith? Hezekiah didn't do that. Verses 2 through 5, as I said a moment ago, are full of very practical steps that he takes to fortify the city. Well, make good decisions, reasonable decisions. Take precautions. Be strategic. Strategizing and taking practical steps are good. But Hezekiah knew that he was up against an enemy greater than himself, and all the, fortif all the fortifications that he made wouldn't be enough. And yet, with all of the odds against him, Hezekiah was still full of courage. Where did Hezekiah get his courage? Look at verse 20. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, so he prayed. That's where he's got, got his courage. That's always the answer, right? That's always the answer. Just like in Sunday school, Jesus is all the answer. You know the old story. The teacher looked out the window, saw a squirrel, said, what's that? And the little kid said, Jesus. That's, that's, that's the way, you know, that, that it always is, right? That the answer is always something. He prayed. That's where he got his courage. Not exactly. Not exactly. I mentioned a few moments ago that we're given more insight into this story in, in another passage of the Bible. In fact, the prophet Isaiah records the exact words of Hezekiah's prayer here. 
And, and here, you don't have to turn. Let me, we'll put them up on the screen. But here are the exact words that Hezekiah prayed. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. Notice now that he's saying all of this in opposition to the dead idols that Sennacherib had been talking about earlier. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. Now, Lord, our God, he says, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. I want to ask you something. What stands out to you about Hezekiah's prayer? Perhaps I should ask it this way. What's different about Hezekiah's prayer than your prayers? I'll tell you what's different about his prayer than mine. My prayers tend to be consumed with me and what I want and what I need. It's all about Jeff. That's what it is. Even if I'm praying for someone else, it's about what I want for them. It's all about me, right? Now, Hezekiah does ask to be delivered from the king of Assyria, but why? 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 Was it for his fame, for his power? Was it for his life? No, no. He says, it's so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. His whole prayer is consumed with God's glory. Did you notice that? That's what he's concerned about, God's glory. Here's something to make note of. Our fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of that in which we place our hope. Uh, our fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of that in which we place our hope. You know what I would say if I were preaching to people in Dallas right now? I would say if you're anxious and nervous and worried and fearful about your career and about your, uh, you know, your success and all of that, if that's where your hope is, those things are very vulnerable. They're vulnerable to the whims of your boss. They're vulnerable to the economy. They're vulnerable to a whole host of things. You're going to be scared and fearful if that's where your hope lies in your career and your success. That's what I'd say to people in Dallas. What I would say to people in Evansville is, if your hope is safety and security, you will be anxious and fearful because your safety and security is subject to the whims of politicians and viruses and cultural currents and a homicidal maniac with a gun, the weather, Vladimir Putin, and a whole host of other things. You will be very anxious and very fearful. Our fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of that in which we place our hope. See that? But if that's true, if that's true, it is also true that our courage is directly proportional to the vulnerability of that in which we place our hope too. You see, if, 
If the one thing that's non-negotiable in your life, if the one thing that you really want, if the one thing you really need, if the one thing, if the one overriding concern in your life is the concern and the glory of God, then you can be courageous. Why? Because God is far greater, far more eternal, far more sovereign, far more wonderful than anything this world may take from you. And in the end, no matter what happens in the short run, He wins. We don't wring our hands over the culture wars if we know the result of the cosmic war. We are on the right side of history because we are on the side of the Lord of history. You can face whatever life throws at you courageously. Success, failure, victory, defeat, you can face whatever comes your way courageously because in all of it, God will be glorified. You are on the winning team. You see, the war is won even if you lose the battle. That's the truth. Well, how does this story end? In response to the prayer of Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, verse 21 says, And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and leaders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons came and cut him down with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the, land, from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. And from then on, he was highly regarded by all the nations. I've been listening to this podcast. This may be a little hard for people from Indiana to hear, but it's a podcast about Andrew Luck. And um, it's about what happened to him, about you know, why he ended up uh, retiring at the age of, what was it, 29? I think 29, 28, 29 years old. And it was just talking about how great a quarterback this guy was. And they were talking about the fact that in his first year at Stanford, they redshirted him, which meant that he couldn't play, right? Um, something they do often to freshmen in college, redshirted him. But they were talking about the fact that in practice one day, he was, um, he was running this drill. And so the drill had him fade over to the, uh, uh, to the left sideline. So he fades over to the left sideline. And all of a sudden, while he's over here at the left sideline, he's looking at receivers down the field, he just quickly turns his head and he sees his receiver going that way. And while all of his motion is going this way, he just flicks the football down the field, perfect strike to the receiver. And they said, here's what they, they, they said, you know, they said most young quarterbacks, like if they're going to throw, it was a 30, 40, 40-yard 40 throw. And they said most young quarterbacks, if they throw that far, they've, they, they've really got to... They've really got to heave it. But they said it was just a flick for him. Just a flick. And that's what I see here. All of this that everybody was so afraid of, it was just a flick for God. He just flicks the king of Assyria and his mighty army away. Just a flick. Doesn't always work out that way. 
There are times that we lose, we fail. But the question to you is, would the risk that you take for the glory of God still be worthwhile even if in the short run it fails? Would it? Take heart, church. We serve a God of infinite riches and knowledge and power. We are small, but He is able. The church historically has always thrived on the margins. That's why our cultural moment doesn't need to be viewed as depressing or anxiety-producing, but instead exciting. It is not bad news. It is good news. We are in the place where the church and followers of Christ have always flourished best. You were quite literally made for this moment. This is a great time to be a Christian. Take heart. Despite all that he did that was so faithful, Hezekiah finds himself in a treacherous situation. Let me ask you something. I've said throughout this series that all of these kings, good or bad, were always intended to point us to Christ. Does this remind you of anyone? Anyone that was faithful and then found themselves in a treacherous situation? See, Hezekiah points us to Christ. Christ who himself lived on the margins. He lived a perfect life, but he died an unjust death. And in the short run, it looked like a defeat. Three days, dead. All of his disciples, scared, lost, depressed, fearful. But on the third day, out of defeat, God brought victory. Your sins were forgiven. The chance to be given a new life was born out of Christ's death and resurrection. Nothing that we need to fear because if God can resurrect a dead person, then there's nothing else that He can't do. All things are possible with God. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? There are many things, Lord, to be, that we can be afraid of. Risk is an inevitable part of life, but we are reminded through Hezekiah's story and so many others in the Scriptures that when you're on our side, when your glory is the number one thing that we're concerned about, that we can be courageous. There's nothing else that we can put our hope in that will do anything except make us more anxious and fearful other than you. Lord, I do pray that one day 50,000 people, 50 years from now, would have come to know Jesus Christ and been discipled through the ministry of City Church. That doesn't mean that they all came to City Church, but somehow through our ministry, 50,000 people were discipled in this city. We pray for that, but we know the odds are against us. But Lord Jesus Christ, we shall take risks in your name. And even if we fail along the way, it could be worth it 
because we took them in your name. We love you, Lord Jesus Christ, and we, could spend the, we will spend the rest of eternity thanking you for what you've done for us. Nothing that we could do could ever repay you for what you've done for us. But we want to be faithful to you because we love you. And we believe that you are the hope of the world, of the city of Evansville. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.